outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. And today I'm speaking with Jason Sumners, who is the science branch chief at the Missouri Department of Conservation. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You might notice that this is not the velvety voice of Mark Kenyon. He sent me a text last week asking me to cover for him so he could attend a Yosemite Sam mustache competition, where not surprisingly, our own Clay Newcomb is one of the guest judges. Feel free to wish Mark good luck on that one. I know he really values his facial hair, so this is a big opportunity for him. Anyway. Today, I'm speaking with Jason Sumners, who is the science branch chief at the Missouri Department of Conservation. Jason has been involved in a pile of deer studies and deer research over the years. He's a devout whitetail and turkey hunter and is just a not only a good guy, but he's a wealth of information on whitetails. And this podcast covers, I don't know, a few different topics, including how he approaches the management of hard science of whitetail research while factoring in the social science aspect, which is which is a weird dichotomy, which is a weird dichotomy that a lot of state game agencies face, uh, the podcast also covers a lot about CWD. This guy is real knowledgeable about CWD, um, where it came from, how they found it, where it's going, what the future looks like. Pretty in depth stuff there. Uh, not as pessimistic of an outlook as I would have expected. So it's actually pretty interesting to hear how he feels about the future of this might go. Um, and we also talk about some management practices like antler point restrictions and how, you know, they have their place in, in different parts of the country. Now, overall, such, such an interesting guy to talk to. I think you're going to absolutely love this one. 
Jason, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. You come highly recommended from a fellow that I had on, uh, gosh, this was months ago now, uh, John McRoberts, who talked all about that wild Missouri buck you guys had down there that lit out for like 180 miles and kind of broke you know, most of the rules we think about for deer. And he was, that, that was a really interesting episode. He's a sharp guy, uh, but he, he recommended you. So you, you come here with a, a gold star by your name. Let me put it that way. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. John, John's a great guy. And we've had the opportunity to work together quite a bit over the last several years. We, we took a turkey biologist and are trying to turn him into a servant biologist. So yeah. Yeah. He's, he's into birds big time. Yeah, learning the challenges of having to to manage a, a four legged critter versus a two legged one. That's a different deal. Uh, before before we get into it, why don't you let the listeners know what you do? Yeah, so um, I'm the science branch chief for the Missouri Department of Conservation, and that's a fancy title to say that I lead a team of about 85 scientists, biologists, you know, real researchers um, that are focused on gathering the science-based information that helps our agency inform um, resource management decisions as well as social um, science kind of related issues as well. So we inform policy through through human dimensions work. Yeah, and that's a that's a big department probably compared to a lot of state game agencies to be you know dedicated to science around game animals and non-game animals too, right? Yeah, so agency-wide, you know, we've got 1,400 full-time employees. We have a really large agency, but we do, you know, pretty unique in terms of having 80-plus um, folks that really are working on everything from fish and wildlife health-related issues to invasive species, systems, you know, ecology and management, watershed protection, to also our, you know, big game um, wildlife species as well as sport fish. So, yeah, we spend... Um, a pretty uh, significant amount of staff resources and dollars to, again, just try to provide the information to help make um, as well informed decisions as we possibly can. Where, where does that come from down there in Missouri? Where, where where did the emphasis for the science behind all this stuff really really take hold? Like, how, how does that happen? It really, the, the science-based management or informed management really dates itself to the beginning of the agency in 1936. And uh, the first action of the Conservation Commission, in fact, was to establish the Cooperative Wildlife Research Unit at the University of Missouri. And so very early on, um, folks here um, recognized the need of science. Uh, Aldo Leopold was very influential um, working with E. Sidney Stevens and some of the folks who, who kind of really helped shape the, the Missouri model of conservation and its citizens-based approach and, and recognize that proactive science and research was, was what was going to need to help guide uh, resource management in the state, across the country, quite frankly, and would be a big foundation for helping build public trust, um, you know, really trying to make it is as transparent as possible how the agency was making decisions and what information they were using to do it. And so it's been a, a long legacy of the department. Yeah. And it, we'll get into this a little bit later because I do want to talk to you more about that. But there's a weird balance there of just hard science based around the resource, whatever, whatever you're studying, whitetails on down or whatever. Uh, but there's also the social science aspect of what you do because you need the you know, you need guys like me to buy licenses and go 
help you shoot a, you know, 20% of your deer every year or whatever, whatever the goal is. And so it's, it's a weird, it's a weird balance to strike. Yeah, no, it is. And it's, again, it's another one of those that the, that the agency has been very proactive in doing. We, we had actually the first social scientist employed by a state fish and wildlife agency was hired by the Missouri Department of Conservation in the late 1970s. And so even from that time forward, you look now, there's still state agencies are just now adding and growing their social science capacity. So I often say, you know, I manage the deer population. It's for biologically and socially acceptable levels. I mean, there are many things that, as you mentioned, we do this cooperatively with the public and specific segments of our public. And so ensuring they are a critical part of our decision-making processes is key to, to the success of any action we take today. Have you, have you worked for other state game agencies? I have not. Um, Missouri Department of Conservation is the only state fish and wildlife agency I've worked for. Um, I went to grad school in Mississippi, spent some time doing research in, in South Texas. So those times I had opportunities to engage with the folks that run those places. But yeah, I've, I've been at Missouri for 13 years. Seems like that, that school down in Mississippi turns out a lot of deer biologists. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I graduated from the University of Missouri and, and had the opportunity to go to Mississippi and work with Dr. Steve Damaris and you know, Bronson Strickland and Randy DeYoung was there at the time. Um, so, yeah, some folks who were really moving and shaking the world of deer management and, and, and open up, you know, my eyes to how things are done in, in different places. Are you, I, I know that you have colleagues from different states and are, you know, you're plugged into this scene and it, it's an interesting, it's interesting to hear you talk about the MDC down there having such a focus on this, uh, it, you know, it kind of speaks to where, you know, even like you talked about 50 years ago, placing the value on hunting and the tradition of hunting, fishing game. And it, it, I guess what I want to ask you is like, do you talk to people in similar positions in other states? Are they jealous of what you guys have going on? Because I know I've interviewed a pile of, uh, you know, state and federal, you know, employees involved in game management in different capacities. And it almost seemed like some states, they're just like struggling to even get noticed at all. And, you know, Missouri, that seems like a different case down there. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I mean, there's there's no doubt we because of the the sales tax also that went into place in 1976. You know, the the citizens of the state of Missouri have been a long term vested you know party in the work of conservation and and, and how that happened. Man, we can we can speculate all day, but but the founding of the commission was based on initiative petition. So 1936, it was put to the citizens of the state of Missouri, how did they want their conservation department to function? And, and at that time, I think the citizens real took real ownership of what conservation would look like moving forward. It wasn't just something put into the executive branch of state government. So from the, from the very beginning, the Missouri Conservation Federation stood up, led the initiative petition to get the Conservation Department created. And then in 1976, after a number of attempts, also led um, a petition to get the one-eighth of one percent sales tax put in place. So again, the citizens driving um, and saying they value and have strong commitment to the work of conservation. So at that time, we got one-eighth of one percent 
um, sales tax generated that goes straight to the Conservation Commission. Another unique thing that many folks don't recognize is that we have a second conservation and state park sales tax. We get one-tenth of one percent that goes to the Missouri Department of Natural Resources and state parks, and half of that is also split out to uh, county soil and water districts. And so you're not only paying the one-eighth, but also the one-tenth. So it's really reflective of, again, the kind of the citizen-led commitment. And so from the very beginning, the department is always, and the commission has always placed great value in that strong, strong relationship with the public. So I think it has built support, not only has it built capacity through the funding, but it's just built general support, rapport, and trust. So we're always talking about how do we maintain the trust of the public? And again, it gets back to the science-based decisions, but then also using social science to inform those as we move forward so that the decision-making process is really open and transparent. Yeah. I mean, you, you'd have a hard time catching me lobbying for lots of extra taxes, but I really love, there's, there's some success stories in the outdoor industry around like what you're talking about, where it's like, this is dedicated funding. It comes from here, it goes to there and that's it. Now, I, I just think when, you know, when you look at the problems we're facing that some of which you and I'll chat about here and, you know, you hear, you hear people throw out different solutions. I just look at this and I go, man, I think the way that we save this at least as long as we can is just through access and I really wish we could get something going, you know, state, state level, there's, you see these walk-in programs in different places and I love them. I, I would love to see more of that, even, even at a federal level somehow where some little tiny chunk of some kind of sales tax or something goes into just access. It's just, we're going to, we're buying more land open to hunting and fishing. We're buying, we're, we're leasing more from the private landowners to encourage this and just, you know, hedge our bets against this urban sprawl, keep some places that aren't going to, you know, become McMansions and just keep that going where it's like, we've got, we've got access out. We're always moving toward that target. I would just love to see that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And there's been some, you know, some federal programs that have helped kind of stimulate that. We were kind of late to the party in terms of, of leasing lands for the purposes of providing recreation, you know, uh, from private landowners. But most of those things have come in short, temporary buckets of dollars from the federal government. So, yeah, you don't get that long, sustained kind of process. When we got some of those initial funding, then the commission, the conservation sales tax was allowed us to then continue to support it and move forward. So there is no doubt continued and consistent funding streams is really, really critical to the work we're doing. It's also part of why um, we're working so hard to get Recovering America's Wildlife Act through Congress, again, to support kind of that third leg of fish, forest, and wildlife, and then kind of the diverse fish and wildlife species to be another pool of consistent funding that isn't just relying solely on the backs of hunters and anglers through, you know, excise tax dollars or license revenue to support the work of conservation. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of ways we could address this. And I know uh, even some of the some of the opportunities that, you know, for those private lands open to public that we had before, they're, they're not enough anymore. I mean, it, it, just as an example, where I hunt in northern Wisconsin, uh, there's a lot of MFL open land. It's a, it's a tax incentivized program 
where if you if you enroll your land, you basically your your tax bill is cut down to almost nothing, and but it's public, and so I mean you can still use it obviously, but so can everyone else. And man, I'm starting to see at least one or two places that I like to hunt go out of that program every year. And it, it, you know, there's a lot of reasons, right? When you get a hot real estate market, people are going to sell, and you know, people want to keep places for themselves, and there, there's a lot of reasons for it. But you see that and go, man, that worked for a while to keep access out there, but it sort of feels like that one's slipping and needs a little bit more love. And I'm sure there's examples of that all over the country where, you know, not not just whitetail hunters, but all hunters are looking at it, going, man, we're, we're losing some stuff that we should, we we need to have access to. And I, I hope we really make that front and center uh, as much as possible in the next few years because I think it's real important. Yeah, it's an ongoing challenge. And as you mentioned, the, the way we hunt has changed, the way we value land and, and, and bringing others along with us uh, to hunt has certainly changed, especially in the whitetail world is, is more emphasis on being very selective in harvest decisions and stuff like that's limited access. And it's only going to get worse. You know, we, we just continue to see the challenges, habitat fragmentation, urban sprawl, all of those things, reducing the acres in which we have opportunity to hunt. And knowing what regulations are and access are the two single biggest barriers that, that most folks face when trying to get into the world of hunting. For those of us that grew up doing it, we, we trudge away and we, we figure it out. Um, but, but if it's not, if you don't own land or you don't know somebody who has land, um, especially in the eastern part of the U.S. And, and certainly here in the heart of the Midwest, having having public land is certainly a challenge as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. We should, we should probably talk about some deer here. What, uh, what are you guys? Oh, let me ask you this first. What are in your position there at MDC? What are you most concerned with, with whitetails right now? Well, certainly right now, chronic wasting disease is always at the forefront of, of the, the biggest challenge we face in terms of long-term management and sustaining deer populations. Um, yeah. And then the second one would certainly be what do long-term hunter numbers look like as we talk about this access issue. Um, it's not only access for individual hunters to hunt, but it's access to deer populations to manage them through hunting. And you know, we struggle here with, with urban deer management issues. Uh, we struggle with quite honestly, with the leasing of large chunks of property where, you know, the folks leasing it that might have a different objective than, than what the landowner uh, leasing it might be. So, so again, you know, certainly access and population management, but no doubt the, the emergence of chronic wasting diseases is at the forefront of that. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. Well, I want to, I want to touch on that, what you just said about the, the challenge of managing deer with such diversified interests out there. And, you know, you see this, you see this a lot where there, there's like a tendency to want to claim ownership over deer. If you're, if you're running a private place and you got that lease or you got your own land and you got the hit list and all that stuff. And then you've got, you know, maybe you've got a, somebody like that on a couple hundred acres next to, you know, Union Ridge or something like that down there in, in Missouri that's going to get, you know, piss pounded during, you know, rifle season and bow season. And so you're looking at that going, well, we've got one landowner or several maybe soaking up a ton of these deer and being very selective. And then we've got another spot where, you know, if it's brown, it's down just because of the sheer numbers of people out there. It's got to, that's got to be a real challenge to manage whitetails with that, with the way things just are. 
Yeah, yeah. You look at the natural things that occur, just the arrangement of habitat on the landscape from a county by county basis. But yeah, you, we, we do have just tremendously varied hunter density um, in, in counties and no doubt difference in personality and, and, you know, what the local hunting culture might be and, and what they desire to have. And so, uh, it, all that does is add to complexity of regulations, makes it hard for folks to understand how we're going to manage the deer population. And so it, it is certainly, um, without a doubt, probably one of the most challenging species that a state fish and wildlife agency has to try to manage to, to balance all those varying interests. Is it, it's got to be, I mean, there's got to be a, a positive side to that though, as well, just from the, you know, they're a keystone species, right? Like Everybody loves whitetails. You know, you get into the Midwest, this is what we have. And, you know, out East, same thing. And so you have that passion around it and that history and tradition and the desire for it. So that's a plus because you, you know, if your intentions are good, you can probably get some funding for this. And, you know, like people, people want whitetails out there, but at the same time, you've got the other end of that spectrum that you're dealing with. And it's it's just got to be difficult. Yeah, you know, I and this is why I I really worry about chronic wasting disease is that, you know, folks do value the opportunity to chase them, to know they're there, to have them on the landscape and appreciate them. You know, they produce millions of pounds of of food every year for folks to eat and you know, we talk about food insecurity things that happen and so they're just a wide range of the way folks value them and there are certainly folks who who they compete with, right? You know, row crop farmers and, and others who are trying to trying to make a living too. So that that dichotomy is challenging. The kind of long term from a broader conservation perspective, you know, state fish and wildlife agencies owe much of their success to the restoration of whitetail deer and turkeys. But the value folks place in recreational lands, the value and the amount of work, habitat work that they'll do to manage for whitetail deer benefits a whole wide diversity of, of species, protects our waterways and our watersheds, provides cover for a whole host of, you know, ground nesting birds and, and, and everything else that occurs within the ecosystem. And, and so my concern kind of, you know, like macroscopically long-term with the conservation community is that as chronic wasting disease continues to increase, as folks choose not to hunt in areas where chronic wasting disease is really prevalent, as the the potential value of of the whitetail deer resource declines, then what happens to much of the rural Midwest where folks have been not pushing out timber to grow fescue and cows, not you know doing some of the habitat management things they've been doing to protect and manage for whitetail deer? And so yeah, no doubt we we worry about the loss of this really important resource, but to me it's also kind of the trickle down effects of of what comes from that uh, and the benefits that, that we get from folks managing for deer and turkeys. Yeah. We, in, in reference to CWD, do you think that we take and by we, I just mean like the general hunting population, we take whitetails for granted because most, you know, I mean, we're aging out, you know, sort of the, the, the upper echelon of the, the, the whitetail hunters, you know, the, the boomers are going away kind of just, just from their age and so a lot of people who are, you know, picking up the reins have only ever known pretty good deer populations. Like, I mean, even, even when I started hunting, which, you know, it was in 1992, you know, it wasn't heyday stuff, but it definitely wasn't like 1970, right? Like I've never known a world where you couldn't go out and count on whitetails to be in the woods with you. 
And I, I always wonder about that in, in reference to CWD, like, are we just, are we taking this for granted that they're always going to be there? This thing goes, this thing breaks bad in a real bad way. You know, we might not have any choice about this. Like this, it might be too late. Yeah, I, I think you're really right, Tony. Uh, you know, in the individual conversations you have with folks, there there tends to be a greater concern with the older hunting public because they do remember the days when 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 you when you expect you you were excited to see a deer, not disappointed when you didn't see a deer. You know, and and it's so shifted. When I took over the deer program in in 2011. Um, the paradigm across much of the Midwest was there was no way we were ever going to get on top of deer populations. They were going to be ever growing. Hunters could never shoot enough deer to control populations. So, yeah, we were living in this world of abundance. We had the 2012 hemorrhagic disease outbreak and on the tail end of years of shooting lots of lots of antlers deer. And in some places, deer numbers went down and folks went, whoa, wait, maybe we can't. So we started to shift that paradigm. But but they've always been very resilient, right? We just backed off a harvest and deer populations come back. And so I, I do think that we take for granted, you know, kind of the resiliency of, of this species and they certainly are resilient. Um, but, but the long-term consequences of CWD are real. And as much as we would like to wish them away, you know, the re reality is it kills deer and it kills them at much younger ages than they would die otherwise. Um, and it's a real, it's a real challenge and a real challenge because we don't see it day to day. We don't see deer or find deer in a pond or a creek dead from CWD like we do EHD. It is just a slow trickle. It's like a pinhole in your tire. You know, it's not like a screw where it just is blowing air out and you know the problem is there. It's like this, this small little pinhole that you can't figure out where it is, but you walk outside one day and your tire's flat. You know, you don't quite understand why. So it's a real challenge for perspective um, to get your arms wrapped around. And, and you guys are pretty heavy into studying a bunch of these aspects of CWD right now down there, aren't you? Yeah, well, yeah, we are. And, and I think at this point, you know, our biggest focus really is trying to do intensive surveillance to inform management. And so we've been doing as intensive of CWD sampling as, as anybody in the country um, to try to really inform management as be as aggressive as we can to try to limit the spread of it. So we, we implemented targeted culling, um, in 2011, shortly after we had our, our first detection in the, in the free ranging herd to try to, again, limit the spread, try to limit the distribution, um, lengthen the timeline in which CWD, uh, has an impact on the deer population. And I think to this point, we've been successful at doing that. But our challenge now is that it is it is so prevalent in free ranging populations across the country, um, as well as had been in, in captive facilities that we're getting new introductions of the disease. So we have it popping up in new places and the continued spread and that challenge that it poses um, is is almost insurmountable. What, what do you say to people? Because I, I know people are listening to this are going to say, well, that's, you're they're popping up because you're testing. What do you say to people when they say that? Well, yeah, that's not true. You know, it just couldn't be farther from the truth. So in 2002 to 2004, the state um, tested 22,000 deer statewide. And so we collected almost 200 deer um, from every county across the state. 
And then what that did was that told us that if the disease was there in 2002, 2004, it was there at very low prevalence. So we should have detected it if it was at a county scale at like 2%. So if we look at some of the most heavily infected core areas of, of Wisconsin, where it's maybe at the county level, it's 10 or 15%, but within the buck segment, it's, you know, it's 50%. We would have detected those. There's just no doubt in my mind we would have detected those. And so as we continued, we, we, we continued to sample deer through that time. And our first detection in the free range population was in 2012, where we had already tested close to 70,000 deer in the state up to that point. So we never stopped testing. We've been testing through time. So the other side of it is, is it follows a very predictable pattern. It increases in prevalence and increases in distribution. If we were just detecting it because we were doing more testing, we would find sort of a stable percentage that the disease would be at. We would go test everywhere and we would just finally find it. But that just does, it's just not the pattern that it follows. And it's an easy narrative for those who don't want to believe to just kind of throw out that um, that suggestion and then we have to like provide the evidence to to refute it right and and so it just doesn't follow the patterns that we see so you guys down there were testing for you know almost a decade statewide before you had a first your first positive pop yes yep were you were you also testing uh captive servants Yes, there was testing occurring within captive serve facilities as well. Yeah. So our first our first free ranging and our first captive um, positives both occurred about the same time. Our first captive positive occurred in 2010 in Lynn County in a hunting preserve. Um, in 2000, fall 2011, we detected it in another captive facility that was associated with that original one about about 10 miles as the crow flies. And then the fall of 2011, we detected it just right outside of that one in the free ranging population in Macon County. And so, again, at that time, we went in and we started doing mandatory sampling in a six county area. And on opening weekend, we started just very intensively sampling and you don't find it. Right. You don't find it. You don't find it. And then a couple of years later, we pick up another spot. So it's it's evidence of introduction. And then when we have those spots, we go in and try to do very intensive removals with the cooperation of landowners to keep prevalence low. And we see different patterns um, based on where we've, we've been in the state, based on participation. Um, but, yeah, so we continually year after year after year are looking at that. One big change we made in the mid-2000s was to shift to, to testing adult bucks, which increased our likelihood of detection increase the power in which we would detect the disease earlier. Yeah. So you, you might've been skewed a little bit. You, you might've been skewed to fewer positives testing the general deer population without a focus on mature bucks, but it yep. still would have, that still doesn't disprove that, that it just wasn't there. And then it showed up and now it's there. Right. Right. Yeah. Another perfect example is, you know, the, the, the border with Arkansas. You know, we we've tested along the border of Arkansas for a long time. And over the last three years, we've detected positives. And that's because of the spread that is occurring throughout, you know, northwestern Arkansas. And so those animals are starting to enter into Missouri. It's not that we hadn't been testing there. It's just that the disease has now been moved there. And so as as we look 
you know, and free-ranging whitetail populations, elk and mule deer populations across the West, hunters are now moving more um, infected animals across the landscape. And, and no doubt, you know, there's more infected deer where the disease exists to make some of those long-distance movements that are introducing the disease to new places. And then again, the continued, you know, movement either in the back of trucks, well, again, dead or alive, Um just represents an opportunity for the disease to get to more places uh, more frequently now than we were, we were 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, and it, what's, what is pretty frustrating about this issue that I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of is it's, there's always an attempt to just boil it down to either it's really not an issue or it's this, you know, this person's fault or this segment of the, you know, servant industry's fault and you see that blame game going on. And then, you know, like that, that study that we referenced earlier with about John, you know, the, the buck that takes a real, real long walk. And then, you know, if you're in the captive servant industry, you could say, well, geez, the, the wild white tails are walking 180 miles away. Maybe it wasn't us moving these deer around. And it's like, no, do you understand? It's probably everything. Like you, you can't just stick your hand, your head in the sand and be obtuse about this and be like, well, couldn't be us. And when you look at these issues and go, man, this is spreading around for a lot of different reasons. And we're all in the same boat. Like this is not something where like, it doesn't do us any good to just fully blame, you know, one segment or the other, when this thing is out there doing what it's doing now. No, I couldn't agree more, Tony, you know, early on, there is no doubt that the distribution of the disease uh, was being spread by confined servants. And, and that's, that's just the reality of how it was getting to some new places and new locations, proving how that happened. Extremely challenging because one thing it's, it's a, it's a really hard disease for us to detect, right? I mean, we got to basically sample dead critters and it's not just as simple as getting a little blood onto a tissue or something like that and, and testing it. You know, we got to have lymphatic tissues, got to go to lab. They have had to have had it for a while for it to detect it. So there's all these things that are inherently challenging when, when detecting the disease, but you're absolutely right that, as the disease became established in free-ranging populations and minimal management action was taken, then populate the disease has increased in free-ranging populations. And so that, that represented an opportunity for more hunters to be unintentionally moving the disease around when they were throwing a deer in the back of their truck, driving, you know, 40 minutes or four hours home, regardless of, you know, where it is, and thinking they weren't doing anything wrong, they bone it out, they throw the carcass out back and let the eagles and the coyotes and everything else scavenge on, hey, putting it back in nature, we're not doing anything wrong. And then it's like, oh, whoops, <laughs> yep. we may have been contributing to the spread of this disease across the landscape. And, and we find ourselves at a point now where it matters not how it got there or how it started. This is where we are. Now, are we taking a holistic approach of trying to minimize the risk of continuing to introduce it to new places and the risk of it, it expanding where it does exist. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver 
off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Do you, do you feel sort of a you know damned if you do, damned if you don't situation here? Because there's really... When, when you get a new, you know, a new flare up somewhere, or you finally, they start popping positive, you, you really only from, from your perspective at the state agency, you really only have two options, let it go and just cross your fingers. Hope you retire before it blows up. Or you go, we got to knock this population down to buy ourselves some time. And that's kind of what we have going on. I mean, it, it, that's gotta be tough. It is. It really is. And I, I often I, I greatly appreciate, you know, Doug Duran saying we're buying time and paying for science. And that's really what we're trying to do, because it elimination of the disease once it's become established, which by the time a lot of the modeling work we've done, by the time we detect it 
are able to detect it, it's there. And the ability to eliminate it from the landscape is so hard. But if we can detect it really, really early, and that's why I think our continued diligence and really intensive testing has allowed us in many of these places to detect it very early, we can go in and do some of these really challenging management interventions like target culling, asking a landowner if we can come on their property and shoot a bunch of deer or ask them to shoot a bunch of additional deer. We can minimize the impacts to everybody else. And if you look at a lot of the survey data that's been done, Illinois has done some great survey data. Their hunters within the places where CWD is at are like, leave us alone. <laughs> we don't want to do anything. Well, they've already got it, so we understand. But you look at the places where they don't have it, and they're like, do everything you possibly can to stop it. So you even have these two great dichotomies that exist that creates a ton of challenges in terms of, of what are we asking folks to do. And and I've talked to many of those landowners. It, 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 how hard could it be to go through the decision-making process, say, I, I, I bought this property to hunt and manage deer, and you're asking me to shoot a bunch of additional ones? You're asking me to make my hunting worse to benefit the, the guys that are 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 miles down the road, or for something that may really not have impacts for me for the next 15 years or 20 years. Yeah. So that's where it gets back to be real challenging about the age of our hunters. If you got really old hunters, they're like, I I'm worried about my hunting for the next 10 years. Yep. Yeah. Unless well, they're forward thinking, they're not thinking the long term. Yeah. It's hard. That that's a that's a hard one. Cause we we don't think 10, 15 years down the road. We just don't I mean you can see this in so many aspects of hunting that, that get pretty frustrating. You can see this in the, the resident non-resident fights out West all the time where, you know, I, you know, there's a lot of non-residents out there and I totally get why they would do this, but if they could wave a magic wand, they would keep, you know, the non-residents out forever and keep the hunting for themselves. But long-term, that's not a great solution for a lot of reasons. It would be beneficial to some people then, you know, like I, I get that. It's the same thing with this. And it, I think maybe maybe the hardest part, I'm, I'm curious how you feel about this, is we can do all these sacrifices. We could do everything that, that you know, the MDC asks the, the hunters and the Minnesota Department, you know, like we could do it all to the best of our ability right now. And it might not change a thing. Well, I think it would. I, Good. I, I think I, I do. I guess that's the glass half full, you know, mindset is that we've been in north central Missouri doing targeted culling on landowners for a decade now, more than a decade, right? 2012 to today, right? So 10 or 11 years of implementing targeted culling. There's still deer there. They still have hunting opportunities. Is the disease spreading? Yeah. Yeah, we're getting geographic change it, it, it's spreading but our prevalence is still really low we still have only you know four in a hundred deer that we test are testing positive for the disease so you still have a preponderance of the animals that that hunters are harvesting and have the opportunity to harvest we're saying are safe to consume they can still enjoy them and 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 it's been it's been a slog right we went through the early stages of all right, we're on board. We'll do whatever we can to then, man, I don't, I don't want, we're tired. We don't want to do it anymore. And I would say that was the mid, middle, like five years of doing this to now 
well, yeah, you guys have been whacking deer for a while. We still got a few deer. So maybe it isn't as bad. Maybe we will go ahead and try to continue to sustain that. And so there's there's no doubt that long-term success is, is really, really challenging. But there are real actions we can do today to try to not make the problem worse and help again buy us a significant amount of time. And we got a couple of places where it's stayed tight. It's stayed small and the neighboring properties and, and you know, the, that circle around is still really small. And so I think there is reason for optimism, but it's not easy. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's interesting to hear you say, you know, if, if we do this right, we can keep that prevalence to around like 4%, which is, you know, given the current circumstances is awesome. We'll take it every time. So then let me, let me ask you what, like what happened in like Iowa County and Wisconsin then they, cause you know, they went hard for a while, but did they just stop? I mean, is that, is that what happened? Yeah. So this, you know, the story in Wisconsin is that, you know, they detected it at a point where I, I would estimate, and, and I'm not sure they, they'll they, <laughs> They've probably got specific numbers. They kind of think where it was. It, it probably would have been a, probably about 5% over a pretty large landscape, kind of evenly distributed. But yeah, so 2004, early 2000s to like 2007, they were very intensively removing deer over a pretty large chunk of the landscape. And you can look at their prevalence rates and they were slowly creeping up, but not a lot. And then in 2007, you know, due to lack of trust, uh, just great resistance to the management actions. Um, they were the guinea pigs, you know, to be quite honest, in terms of what, what do we learn? How do we communicate? What are we trying to accomplish? So those of us that came after had the benefits of kind of learning from the experiences of Wisconsin, but, but they stopped. And since 2007, it's done nothing but increase exponentially, both in prevalence inside of the core areas and the geographic distribution, where now there's, there's, you know, 100 and you can look at some of their data and say there's a 144 square mile area where literally 50 percent of the adult bucks that they harvest and test test positive. So you're flipping a coin as to whether the buck you shot, the CDC says you could or should consume it. And so, man, that that to me is is really hard. And so you're seeing shifts in their behavior. So you're seeing hunters that want to sh have deer to eat shooting more like young deer and not shooting older deer or avoiding some of those places where there's just really high prevalence. Um, so I, with cooperation, we can, I think, manage prevalence to, to some extent. Geographic spread is is just a whole nother beast that that is 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 really, really challenging to manage. Do you do you feel you know, when you talk about, you know, the difference between what happened in Wisconsin and I mean, obviously they were different circumstances and then what happened with what you guys were handling down there in Missouri and actually, you know, like your optimism and feeling like you kind of got a hold on this thing, like you kind of at least got a, a plan that can work. Do you feel like there's just a, there's just an optics problem a lot of times between state game agencies and the hunters? I think that could be the case. Yeah, there, there's certainly an inherent trust that the hunting public or the broader public has in the decision making of their state agency. The individual decisions state 
agencies may, <laughs> yeah, folks may or may not agree with them, but it's a matter of whether they're generally agreeable to the agency or not. I firmly believe that, you know, we started this whole discussion of what is kind of the broad public trust in the State Fish and Wildlife Agency. And I don't think there's any doubt that we would not be where we are today in terms of being able to manage CWD without that broad and real deep public trust that doesn't necessarily exist in other places. So that's a that's kept things from while at the legislature and other places there has been some noise around our management efforts it's kept the discussions at the local level and so we've tried really hard to be in those local communities having the conversations with the direct individuals impacted and not having the conversations in Jeff City, right? Yep. Where do the management decisions like hit the ground? Where does that matter? And you got to be there and you got to be local and you got to be engaged. And so some of the differences we've seen across the state have been a reflection of where we have more staff in the local community. We have greater trust and buy-in in those places. They are more heavily engaged in some of the spots where it's popped up where we just don't have as many staff assigned. There, there just aren't as many of them there. The trust and the relationships aren't there. And so we've struggled to, to really kind of gain that kind of foothold in terms of, of management of the disease. But, but yeah, there is, there is no doubt that us as a state agency having general broad public support, again, may not agree on any general decision that we make, but for the most part, I think folks understand the Department of Conservation has the best interest of the resource in mind and trying to do it in a way that's so socially acceptable um, to, to get it done. Uh, and then very proactive in trying to socially engage um, with the folks that are impacted by the disease. Yeah. What, what's happening on the science side of things? So I know there's a lot of research going into the distribution of CWD and, and how it's getting places and, you know, what the prevalence levels doing checked versus unchecked, but what, what else is being done? Is there, is there any promising science out there, any promising research that like gives us hope that maybe we could like actually get a handle on this stuff and, you know, maybe, you know, not have it be killing every deer that it infects? Or is, is there any, is there hope on that front somehow? Yeah, I think there's lots of hope. Um, there's no doubt it's going to take a, you know, Nobel Prize winning kind of scientific paradigm shift in how we deal with prion diseases to really get us over that next step to, you know, therapeutics or a cure or, you know, some inhibitor to infection. But there's been great progress over the last couple of decades in our better understanding of prion diseases, you know, trying to better connect with prion biologists across the country that are dealing with prions in humans and other species. Um, we have invested a ton of, of time and energy with, with, you know, John, you know, the group he works with, University of Montana, in terms of trying to do modeling research to understand which segments of the population we need to target to kind of minimize prevalence and change in geographic distribution, you know, get a better handle on what proportion of the population, which particular segments of the population and where on the landscape can give us the biggest bang for our buck. 
Um, you know, one of the biggest criticisms we all often hear is, well, you're shooting a lot of healthy deer to protect them from a disease, you know? And so it's like, well, yeah, we understand that. And we need to shoot a lot of deer to manage populations, but how can we better refine our management actions to, to be much more targeted? But then we're also forming kind of unique partnerships with others outside of our traditional group we would work with. We we're now working with the school of engineering and the veterinary diagnostic lab at the university of Missouri to implement some really new and innovative, you know, nanotechnology and, and engineering kind of challenges to, to disease detection, right? Can we get to a place where a hunter could um, collect a bit of blood um, and, and be able to be that earlier, much earlier detection, much easier to do, much less costly and time intensive for us to do that. So, so we've actually been able to use some nanotechnology to detect um, prions in the blood. What does that mean? We don't we don't exactly know yet, but but we're making you know incremental progress. And there's been a ton of work on just prion biology to better understand actually the mechanisms in which these things operate. Um, and then how might we be able to interfere with them or protect animals from those um, from those infections? So. It's, it's all sort of an emerging thing. Prions, in terms of our understanding um, from a science community, is just really, really limited. But one of the bright sides of CWD is it's gave, it's gave prionologists another model to work in, right? They can work in deer because they can replicate it. Many of these struggles they'd faced with humans, we can't exactly experiment on humans. Right. And so it is opened up the realm for them to really start to ask some challenging questions. And there and there has to be at least a little. This is a weird one, but it, there has to be a little bit of a benefit for how quickly generations turn over in the whitetail population to just see, you know, it, 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 which is kind of kind of leads me to what I want to ask you. Like, Whitetails are pretty amazing critters as far as adaptability and I mean, they play, they play well with man. They play well out in the real wilds. They, they, they're survivors. Uh, do you see, is there any reason to have a little bit of hope that maybe just through some evolutionary thing, these whitetails will get this taken care of, or we'll get, we'll get a certain percentage of them that are just not going to be susceptible to these prions? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's certainly a, a hope. You know, there's lots of genetics work being done. Um, folks across the country um, looking at, you know, how or are we seeing shifts in particular genes that have been identified as as sort of resistant? And and I hate to use that term. We, we hear resistant genotypes or there's resistant deer out there on the landscape. At this point, we still don't know that there's any deer that's completely immune to CWD. What we do know is there are some particular genetic makeup of deer that kind of delay progression of the disease, which on one hand, you might think, well, that's good. They're, they're delaying progression. They're going to live a little longer. Maybe, they're, maybe it's not as bad. From a distribution of the disease and spreading it, though, the problem is, is they live longer and it gives them greater opportunity to spread the disease. So there's like this little bit of a trade-off there. And there's some other unknown consequences of some of these deer that appear to have some level of resistance to progression of the disease. But I don't think there's any doubt that animals evolve and have evolved through a number of disease bottlenecks and things like that. But those things typically occur over 
thousands or tens of thousands of years. And we, in our short, you know, kind of time frame of, of looking at things, we're like, well, that letting it go and maybe they'll recover is something that would, yeah, maybe they would recover in the length of time it's been since we're here now to the time of the, you know, end of the Pleistocene. You know, I mean, it's yeah. it's like those long term kinds of things. So folks are looking at it. But for management of free ranging population, it's it's really, really challenging to think um, that that's our our only solution or hope um, inside the confined servant industry. Absolutely. If we can make those animals less susceptible, more resilient um, and make it less risky, you know, moving moving those lambs across the landscape, then sure, some of the genetics work can can certainly benefit them. Um, but, yeah, we, we don't know and we don't know what some of the trade offs of the disease resistance might be to other characteristics and survivability of the deer. Yeah. So there just just to clear this up there. There's evidence out there that some deer with certain gen- genetic makeups can survive longer after infection, but there's no evidence that there's any natural immunity out there in the wild populations, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. E- even those that, that appear to be, you know, not nearly as susceptible, um, They've been attempting to do some manipulations in confined facilities and stuff like that, but there's still no evidence that they won't get the disease or that they're resistant from getting the disease. Yeah, because that's that's a common thing that's brought up, you know, even way back from the discovery in Colorado days of like, oh, this thing's been around forever and some deer get it and some don't. And it just, you know, finds some level of equilibrium out there in the population. And none of that's true, right? There's no way the only equilibrium I think it's going to find out there in the population is is at what point has it infected all the deer that it can infect versus kind of the new ones that are put out on the landscape. So there is some like if you look at the whole deer population as a whole, you know, there's probably some 50 to 60 percent prevalence that we probably can't go above unless they're in a small pen where they're absolutely touching one another but animals are dying. Animals are getting removed from the population. You got new ones being added to the population every year. Is the female and their social group actually infected? You know, there's there's kind of some of these more complicated things that would that would impact that 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 top prevalence. But but no, I would say there's no evidence that we've we've reached some low level stable um, kind of prevalence of the disease that animals are going to continue to persist. But, but you see, I don't think it's going to lead to population extinctions, though. Right. One big thing that really happened in the late 80s and early 90s is folks were modeling this thing out. It's uniformly lethal, you know, by two and a half or three and a half or four and a half. You know, most of the animals are going to get it. And they're going to die. Led to some models that predicted extinction. Right. Predicted extinction of the species or locally extinct. Back to the resilience of whitetails. I don't believe that will be the case. I, I think there's still going to be enough ability for young individuals to reproduce in the population, to continue to produce fawns, that we'll have deer. The question is, is whether CWD is going to be that governor of the population, which in many places it probably will be, that removes hunting from being necessary to manage deer populations, that they will just simply be regulated by the 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 fact that there's enough CWD in the population, it's killing enough old individuals 
that we have no harvestable surplus. That is that if you harvest some, you just have fewer deer. Yeah. So I think that's sort of probably, you know, in in 500 years or whatever, when we look out at to what's the whitetail population look like, that's where we could find ourselves. Do do you see like in your research, have you seen that? So when you say, all right, even if you take a place that's got a heavy prevalence and they've just let it go, just said, whatever, we're just going to, we're going to manage whitetails like we always did. We're not going in to knock them down. We're going to just let this thing go. And you see, you know, 50% of the bucks, you know, mature bucks or whatever. And you see, let's say there's a 40% prevalence rate, just, just for the hell of it in the population. Why doesn't it become a hundred or, or does it? when they get to a certain age. Yeah. So I, I think why it doesn't come to a hundred is because you have, and it may be in that segment, you still have to have individual deer transmitting it to one another and you still have to have sufficient or sufficient environmental contamination that they're still exposed to the pathogen. So as we talk about individual deer behavior, you know, those, you know, if you watch deer on trail cameras or try to map them out on your property, whatever, you know, you got deer that are just like reclusive, like they're always by themselves. They're never in a spot where everybody else is at. And then you got deer that are everywhere, right? They're always there. They're always interacting with other groups. And so those deer that are always interacting with other groups individually are more susceptible to contracting the disease. That one that's a loner and it's hanging out, may only be exposed during particular times of the year. So there's always going to be some level of individual behavior or just spatial arrangement on the landscape of where they're hanging out that's going to make them less susceptible. And then you can add some genetic components to it potentially. So that's why part of why you won't get to 100%. And then you've always got, you know, maybe up to... 25 or 30 percent of your population being added new every year in the form of fawns you know and so you've got you've got this new pulse of uninfected naive animals every year that occurs that that sort of limits that ability to push up to Uh, but i would say yeah in some places you probably if you just took out whatever is left of the adult segment of a three and a half and plus year old segment of of a buck population in some really heavy infected areas I would guess your prevalence there is going to be pushing towards that 75 plus percent. And when, when you talk about you know, those loner bucks out there who don't seem too social and, and seem to really just be hardwired to kind of be loners for their survival, you know, you want to talk about what, what evolution could do for whitetails. If you gave, if those were the primary breeders over, you know, the next couple thousand generations, you might have a lot less social whitetail population that would be less likely to pass this thing around and maybe naturally get it into some kind of check a little bit. But we'll be way dead before that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think these are, you know, these are like the, the evolutionary mechanisms that lead to change. But yeah, that takes it takes hundreds or thousands of generations typically for those kinds of things to happen. Let's let's talk about something more le- less depressing than the future of CWD. <laughs> um, I know I know Missouri's been pretty proactive, at least in parts. I'm not sure if it's the whole state uh, with APR and some some management, which is kind of a you know kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum versus knocking everything down to keep CWD in check in certain hot spots. 
how do you how do you negotiate or like how do you navigate that world of being you know because I know you're I know you're a hardcore hunter and I know a lot of the deer biologists and the wildlife biologists I interview are and so you've got this world of like you know we're gonna we're we're gonna address this disease issue in a way that's not gonna look great to hunters because we're taking we're taking whitetails off the landscape like you said healthy ones so they don't get sick so they don't spread it and then on the other end you've got you know we'd like we'd like you to shoot bucks with four points on a side or, you know, minimum inside spread or something like that to just increase the, the experience to a lot. I mean, it does have some, I, I believe anyway, the APR and some of the management stuff has some positive biological effects as far as age structure and stuff like that. But it's also just mostly viewed as a social thing to like, we're going to let them bucks grow up. <laughs> like we're, we're going to put a value on them. How, how do you navigate that kind of dichotomy? Well, I would say First, one of the big reasons, there were two reasons we went to the antler point restriction and started it in 2004. One was, like we talked a little bit ago, ever-expanding, exponentially growing deer populations and, and a hunting public that really shot whatever first legal deer came by. And so could we, by implementing a restriction on bucks, get folks to shoot more antlerless deer? So that was a big reason why we started down the path. Also knowing a, a, a big benefit of it would be you're letting young bucks pass and age on into another age class, which they then become more challenging to hunt. And despite the fact we put a little more, you know, still put pretty high pressure on them, by the time they get to those older ages, they're more challenging to kill, even if there are more of them out there. You get to kill more of them because there are more of them out there, but they're still equally as challenging. So really for us in many places, the evaluation was on what did it do to antlerless harvest? How would that impact it? And we, we've seen some real differences based on hunter density. We talked about some of the challenges of county by county management and some places where you got real high hunter density and where you don't. In places where we have high hunter density, the antler point restriction really does have a huge impact on the growth rate of the population because that opportunity to shoot first legal deer, they were then shooting does. And in a couple of places, we actually removed the antler point restriction because we were killing too many does because of it. You could see the clear shift. In other places where we had kind of moderate deer densities, it certainly helped dampen things down and it helped facilitate this conversation of managing the population. As it relates to disease management, the way that I've always communicated it is that we're doing everything we can to try to detect the disease in whitetail populations across the state. And it's not there. Or if it's there where we have the APR, it's at a very, very low prevalence. And so our management for these quality populations that, that, that a growing segment of our hunting public desires to have and the kind of interaction that occurs with a buck, segment of the population that's older, you know, no doubt kind of the more natural breeding systems that would have occurred is a good management strategy. There's nothing wrong with it. How do we just make sure and effectively communicate that CWD is not everywhere and it's only going to get there by us introducing it? The flip side of that, that we've been having the conversation now is as as we look at our populations, as we better understand the dynamic of the disease, 
how do those management strategies make our populations more or less resilient when CWD gets there? So I think, and and that's some modeling work we've we've really started to initiate. What's the you know what's the likelihood? How fast might it spread um, if that introduction occurs? And and so I think that's where a little bit of the push and pull happens. But but I've been pretty staunch that that the APR is a good rule. It's very popular. It it has its place. It does not have a place with disease management if the disease is present. But if it's not present. Let's let's keep doing good deer management. Keep testing and try to detect it, but but it's a good regulation. Yeah, and that I think that uh, that's so refreshing to hear because it, you know, like I said earlier, it's it's really easy to sort of boil this stuff down and you know for against or whatever. But when you look at <clears throat> something like APRs, when you take antler point restrictions, and from my perspective as a hunter, I hear you say that, and I'm like, hell yes, I. I have no problem with, you know, getting rid of a little bit of its brown, it's down and, and ha- having some, you know, better age class deer, especially if you have legitimate options to kill antlerless deer. And on your side of things, you're like, hey, we want to we want to knock back this population a little bit, balance it out better and, you know, keep the hunters happy because they're still going to be seeing deer. They're still going to have their, their venison. They're still going to have a better chance at killing a big buck. And it sort of feels like a win win. Then you go, well as long as we don't get popped for CWD here and then <clears throat> all bets are off. Cause now, you know, we don't want a bunch of old age males in this population. And it really kind of highlights how difficult this kind of push pull is with, you know, the perspective of somebody tasked with managing a wild game population versus the desires of the average hunter. There's so much going on there and it's so not a simple thing. Yeah, it is a huge complex set of interacting variables. You know, and 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 the other side of it is there's not there's not one perfect solution to that. We could do it any number combination of ways. And that's why I think we see state to state differences, right? That culturally, you know, we've we've established cultural norms as to the way that we want or like to hunt deer. And so how do you then shift these tools around to say, okay, well, here's the suite that we think will kind of hit that that sweet spot, kind of satisfy our population. Because we could do, we, you know, I I last one to say that we have the perfect model in terms of deer management. It's 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 just a series of trade-offs. And and so as we've as we have built changes into this, I think we have tried really hard to do it with the public. We talk about the public outreach and engagement um, in 2014, 2015, sort of as CWD was emerging. We were in the midst of some of these population declines um, resulting from the 2012 hemorrhagic disease outbreak, strong shift towards antlerless harvest, increasing hunter numbers, actually, in the state for one of the few. Um, it's been on the downward trend since then. But all these challenges, we actually entered into eight or 22 public meetings in about an 18 month period to revamp our deer management plan to say, what are we going to do? How are we going to manage the, the disease and how do we want to manage the whitetail population as we move forward? So it's just a, it's just a, it's so critical that we continue to have that agency hunting public 
other affected stakeholder dialogue on an ongoing basis to figure out where we as a state think we want to try to push the deer population. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. All right. I got, I got two questions for you to wrap this sucker up. <clears throat> the first one is, do you think we should ar- arrange a cage match between Doug Duran and, and Ted Nugent so they can fight <laughs> over this issue? <laughs> and I mean, a, I don't mean a debate. I mean, a real fight. Oh man, I, I, it's, it's hard, you know, and, and I've been in the middle of those. I, and I, it is, it's just, I just wish we could, you know, find some common ground and, and, and get back to, you know, what, what do we know and what do we not know? And, and just be honest about the dialogue. But unfortunately, when you deal with the public, you deal with the values, the beliefs, and everything that comes along with those individuals. And, and inherent mistrust of government is part of that, the mistrust of science, the actions of government and of science that have contributed to that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a tangled web, but I, I, I greatly appreciate Doug and, and his perspectives. I've had the chance to, to speak with him you know, at a, a few engagements over time and, and just really greatly appreciate his perspective. Yeah. All right. Last one. Are you, can you, can you make a phone call down there at MDC and, and make it so we can hunt turkeys all day? I would sure like <laughs> to be able to do that. Um, we've had ongoing discussion of that uh, for a long, long time. And, and it really is a, we're missing opportunity um, by not having all day turkey hunting. You know, our research and stuff would certainly suggest um, that we're not over harvesting our gobblers, um, that we still have great opportunities, <clears throat> especially now as I have a son, you know, who's who's seven and we only have the mornings during the regular season and, and the loss of, of some of those opportunities to get him out in the field. You know, it, it, it certainly is is an opportunity that we're missing. You know, the flip side of it is, is we've got production problems. Yeah. And and when you talk about increasing opportunity to harvest a species um, while the species isn't necessarily doing as well as it had been, it, it's hard, again, to get over those humps of, well, at least we could just do something. If we could save one more hen, if we could save one more gobbler, at least we're doing something. And so it becomes a really, really challenging thing just to do um, socially even though biologically um, it, 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 it would be, or, or at least our evidence suggests it would not have a significant negative impact on the population, but just hope we can figure out something that's going to help with production. Um, yeah. That's, that's so a whole nother issue. <laughs> a whole nother issue with the turkeys. I'm, I'm just saying you guys would definitely sell me a non-resident turkey tag every year. If you let me hunt all day. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It definitely has an impact, you know, early on when turkey was really, really good non-res could bump in, shoot bird, be gone, or, you know, show up at the tail end of the first week and shoot one bird and then, then catch the second bird, the first part of the second week and, and go on. You know, I, I don't, I don't doubt that, um, the half day hunting has, has had an impact on non-resident participation in the state. Yeah. Well, it has on me. I love, I love turkey hunting down there, but I have a hard time, you know, calling it at one o'clock and then you're just sitting in your tent picking ticks off yourself, waiting, for, waiting to go try to roost one or something, you know, uh, it's tough. Anyway, Jason, it, it, this has been really fun, man. I'm so glad you took the time to come on here and, uh, and, and speak with me. So I, I really appreciate it, man. 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I, and I never turn down the chance to talk to folks who have an audience who, again, we can break down those barriers, start to develop relationships with people to understand how and why and the thought processes beside, behind those of us who are making management decisions, state fish and wildlife agencies. And so I just appreciate um, you and, and everyone else who, who opens up the opportunity for us to to speak to an audience in a, in a different way and in, in a less controversial way. We're not arguing specifically about a particular regulation or something like that and, and just share thoughts and ideas and, and the kinds of things we're thinking about that we just don't get to do in a lot of other formats. So I appreciate everything you guys do to continue to the hard work of all of us doing the right thing for conservation. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right, that's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more whitetail goodness. This has been the Wired to Hunt podcast, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your support. And if you're looking for more whitetail content, be sure to head on over to themeateater.com slash wired to see a pile of new articles each week by Mark, myself, and a whole bunch of whitetail addicts. Or head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel and you'll see the weekly how-to videos that Mark and I drop. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.